Well, as we embark upon our study of the life of the third patriarch of the book of Genesis, who is Jacob, I want to very quickly review some of what we have already learned about this man from our study last year. Even before he was born, long, long before the invention of the ultrasound machine, an ultrasound test, his mother, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Isaac, remember, is a son of Abraham. Well, Rebecca was told by the Lord God himself that she was to bear twin sons. The reason God told her for the strange struggle that was going on within her long, barren womb, she had been barren for 20 years, and now she was pregnant, but there was a struggle going on within her. God told her the reason for that was that there were two sons, twin sons, within her. And uh, they were going to be the progenitors of two nations and two manners of peoples. That was in chapter 25, 23, I believe, where God spoke to her there. And they, he told her that they would struggle against each other, not only before birth, as they were doing in the womb, but even at the time of birth, they would struggle against one another and all the rest of their lives as well, <clears throat> and the lives of their descendants. Furthermore, God told Rebecca that the elder son, who we know turned out to be who? Esau, would serve the younger son, who was Jacob. Now, Jacob was born, remember, grasping the heel of his elder brother in a seeming attempt to hold Esau back from getting through the birth canal first. And for that reason, his parents named him Jacob, which is a name that comes from the Hebrew root word for heel, you know, on your foot, a heel. And it it leads also to a Hebrew word, which means to trip up, hence to deceive or to supplant. You know, if a person trips up another person uh, in a race, for example, then he can supplant him, meaning he can take his place in that race and beat him. Well, very true to his name, Jacob was quite a manipulator throughout most of his life. As we learned from our previous look at his early life, he did indeed trip up his elder brother Esau by obtaining both the birthright, which would normally go to the elder son, unless he disqualified himself. But Jacob tripped up Esau by gaining the birthright and the patriarchal blessing. Although both really rightfully belonged to him, belonged to Jacob, by way of God's decree. Jacob was wrong in the methods, and he was wrong in that he did not wait upon God, you know, for God to work out his own prophecy, his own word. But at least Jacob was right in that he believed God's word and he desired to have the covenant blessing of God, which had originally been given to his grandfather Abraham and then passed down to his father Isaac. It would take a lot of years of working on Jacob by way of the tests and the trials that God would give to him to get him to stop relying on his own methods of accomplishing, accomplishing things, you know, even good things, and to trust and to rely on the Lord instead to work things out in his way and in his time. In fact, what did it take for Jacob to stop relying on his own ways? It took a night of wrestling with none other than the angel of the Lord that we discussed last year year, was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it took a night of wrestling all night with um, Jesus himself before the heel gripper realized his own weaknesses and learned instead to cling to the Lord for his strength. Well, from man's perspective, Jacob was probably a much more difficult person to like than his elder brother Esau. In all likelihood, if there had been an election, you know, like we had last Tuesday, if there had been a popularity contest, let's say, between the two brothers, Esau and Jacob, Esau probably would have won. However, man's perspective is very often different from God's perspective, right? 
I mean, we find there's a lot of Christians we don't like. (laughs) And there's a lot of people out in the world who we might like a whole lot better. But man's perspective is not the same as God's. Sadly, and this is even true sometimes with believers, we saw this evidenced even by their own father, Isaac. Because although Isaac was a true believer and even, you know, a very godly man for most of his life, yet even he favored who? Who did he favor of his two sons? He favored Esau. And that was because Isaac had not been seeing things from God's perspective. Mankind in general and even the nation of Israel did the very same thing when it came to the matter of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. They stumbled over his humanity, right? And they, they would not look at Christ with spiritual eyes. In fact, Israel chose Barabbas, the criminal, over the Son of God. That's how great their blindness was. Similarly, the world today in general rejects the nation of Israel, refusing to see that nation as God sees her and to accept his words about her. And just as Isaac, for many years, refused to see Jacob as God saw him and to accept God's words about Jacob. And as the world as a whole has refused to see Christ as God sees him and to believe what God's word has to say about him. Now, according to God, Esau, not Jacob, was the profane man. And we learned this over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 16, because Esau had no time or heart for God. He had no interest in God's plan to bring salvation into the world. You see, despite all the flaws and all the failures and all the shortcomings and all the flesh activities of Jacob, yet the truth of the matter is that Jacob had a heart for God, and God knew it. God looks at the heart, doesn't he? God knew that his heart was set upon him. You see, God doesn't seek for those who are good. He's not looking for people who are good because as it says in Romans 3.12, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Rather, the Lord is seeking for those who want to be good because he then desires to make them so. He desires to make them good. How does he make them good? Of course, through the perfect goodness of the one in whom they place their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jacob wanted to be good, and that's what God was looking for. Now we find, too, that Esau, the son who was outwardly likable and and manly, you know, macho man, and uh, yet as likable as he would have been and as popular with his buddies, yet he was completely disinterested in spiritual matters. Actually, he had a much easier life than his brother Jacob. We, we learn as we read, you know, about Esau in the Bible, we learn of, of no great struggles in his life other than his great tears for, uh, you know, having been outwitted by both his mother and his brother and losing his father's blessing. We saw that last year at the end of, sort of near the end of chapter 27. So he cried a lot about losing the blessing, although that blessing really didn't belong to him in the first place. He was really trying to steal it from Jacob. Um, But other than that, we never see him suffering for a lack of anything. I mean, his father, even though he didn't get the, the, uh, the double portion of the inheritance, his father was so extremely wealthy that we know that Esau never had a lack for anything materially. And he was able to well satisfy all of his fleshly appetites all of his life and enjoy what he enjoyed the most, which was the outdoor life. He didn't ever have to serve for his wives. He never had to suffer separation from his family. He never lacked for anything. And he even, we find out, he even became the father of a long line of dukes or chieftains, as well as the nation of Edom. But in contrast, Jacob's life was one full of sorrow, pain, fear, 
separations, hard work, marital strife, parental problems with his sons. I mean, he had to uh, leave home because of his brother's murderous hatred toward him. And we find that even 20 years later when he returned home, he still greatly feared Esau. Also, when he left home, he had been separated from his parents and he never again would see his beloved mother. Uh, And later, he was deceived in marriage after working seven years for the woman that he loved. And he struggled with the strife that went on between uh, the four mothers of his sons, mothers who had a kind of an ongoing contest for his affection and for his offspring. And he was uh, brokenhearted when he lost the love of his life, Rachel, and had to put her in an early tomb. He was degraded and humiliated by his devious father-in-law. And years later, he was separated for many long years from his favorite son, Joseph, over whom he greatly grieved, thinking that he was dead. Why did he think he was dead? Because he had been deceived by ten of his sons. Just as he had deceived his father Isaac, pretending he was Esau, like, you know, you reap what you sow. He was deceived by his sons, who told him that Joseph was dead. So in Genesis 47, 9, as an old man, we hear Jacob say these words. He said, few and evil or difficult have the days of the years of my life been. So we might ask the question, why should we prefer the life of Jacob over the life of Esau? And we definitely should. Well, the reason is because Jacob was loved by God. The discipline that he encountered via all the trials and the troubles were evidence of God's love, were they not? What does it say? I have it right up here in Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Just as parents discipline their children. Why? Why do you discipline? Why do you spank your children or your grandchildren? Right, because you love them. So does God discipline his children because he loves them. It's the sufferings. It's in the sufferings and it's in the trials and it's in the sorrows and even uh, in the lessons from our own sins that we are drawn closer to the Lord and made more and more conformable into his son's image. Now, some of us may have, I don't know, but maybe some of you have a mistaken concept about the love of God. You know, perhaps somebody has the general idea that God's love will mean a life of divine protection and shielding and comfort and, you know, everything will be a bed of roses, escape from trials and tribulations of this world. And the thought of a God of love who uses the hammer and the anvil and the file and the hot kilns of trials and tribulations, that's foreign to the understanding of a lot of people, a lot of uh, people in churches even. Yet the God of the Bible is just such a God who uses, you know, with just such love where he does use the hammer. His love will do whatever it takes to drive out from us all that is false and all that is selfish so that we are eventually made to be true and selfless. His love is manifested in his grace, which will discipline us until we learn to turn from ungodliness and turn from our worldly passions and lusts to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present world. So that's the love of God. That's what the love of God is all about. Now, if ever, then, there was a life to study which should give us hope A godly life to study. I mean, we could talk about Lot, but we already did that, but we wouldn't really want to emulate him. But if ever there was a life to study which should give us hope, it's the life of Jacob. His life was one which was full of setbacks. And I don't know about your life, but mine is kind of like that. You know, one step forward, maybe three backwards. Jacob encountered all kinds of tragic failures in his faith. And he had to reap abundantly that which he had sown. Now, the commentaries that you can go out and buy 
on the life of Jacob. They are full of words about his deceitful nature and his finagling ways, his conniving arts. (laughs) Yet, the wonder of wonders... And this really is a wonder. The wonder is that God, in his holy word, the Bible, never says one bad word about Jacob. The commentators do, and I will be, but God himself never says one negative thing about him. Although he allows us to see how he did reap the bad fruit that he had sown in the flesh and consequently, you know, how he was disciplined by the sins that he had committed. Yet God is never ashamed to refer to himself as Jacob's God. God in in the Holy Scripture actually refers to himself 22 times, as you see on this transparency, as the God of Jacob. Now, I mean, how would you like to see your name? 22 times God affiliates his name with your name in the Bible. Wow. I mean, even once would be great. But God affiliates himself with Jacob 22 times. That is a wonder, isn't it? You'll say that especially after we get through studying this man. So why, we might ask, would God want to associate his holy name and his holy character with one who was so seemingly unholy, at least for much of his life, Again, it is because Jacob knew God and Jacob believed God's promises concerning the coming Savior, the Redeemer, you know, the the promised seed of the woman. If you missed last week's lesson, we talked a lot about Genesis 3.15. And so in God's sight, Jacob was holy, quote unquote. He was holy in Christ. The message of the life of Jacob, very simply put, is that the same Lord back then who was rich in mercy and grace to Jacob is equally generous with all of those to this present day who call upon his name, who believe in the Redeemer. Not the coming Redeemer, but the Redeemer now who has already come, came 2,000 years ago. Because the Lord is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, right? And he feels the same toward any believer today as he did toward Jacob. He is equally ready to do for you and me just as much as he did for Jacob by way of forgiveness. And, you know, remember, he's the God of the second chance. And he's the God of unconditional love. It doesn't matter how flawed our characters might be or how cursed by sin we might be, or how full of guilt, how disgraced and shamed we might be. You know, like Jacob, the deceiver, who who became Israel, a prince of God. Maybe we're shamed and disgraced over our past. It doesn't matter, because we too can become uh, conformed into princes and princesses. Remember, Jacob became Israel. His name was changed from deceiver to the prince of God. And we might have been a deceiver and a conniver and a manipulator and all that, but when we put our faith in in God, he will use that hammer until he also makes us princes and uh, princesses, I should say, princesses of God. So just remember, as it says in Psalm 46, 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Well, as we begin our look at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 28, I want to reset the scene so that we can remember where we left off back in May. When Esau and Jacob were young men, they had agreed to a swap, you know, a trade, an exchange. And we called that swap Beans for the Birthright. That was the name of that lesson. Esau had come, remember, he had come dragging in from a very fruitless and frustrating adventure out in the field. He was an outdoorsman. He loved to hunt. He'd been out there hunting for a long time. And he came in uh, back to the home place there. And by his own admission, he said he was faint and famished. That's chapter 25, verse 30. So what did he do? Well, he begged his brother Jacob for some red lentil pottage or soup or stew, whatever you want to call it, which Jacob had probably purposely prepared for just such an opportunity. 
You know, seeing Esau's carnal nature and, and, of course, knowing that he would come in like that. He probably often came in famished like that. So uh, seeing his, his carnal nature at such a peak of desire for that red bean soup and knowing also of his brother's disregard for spiritual matters, Jacob immediately, didn't waste any time, as soon as his brother said, give me some of that red stuff, Jacob made his proposal. So you know he had given this some thought. And he said, sell me this day your birthright. Well, Esau's terrible answer was, behold, I am at the point to die. In other words, oh, I'm famished, I'm starving to death, so what profit shall this birthright be to me? You know, what good is my birthright when I'm going to starve to death? So the swap was made, the exchange was made, and it was then sealed with Esau's vow. In addition to some possible material benefits such as a double portion of the father's inheritance. The birthright that he had just traded for a, you know, one meal included being the priestly head of the family in the father's absence. You know, if the father died or if the father was sick, the one who got the birthright would take over the priestly head, uh, worship services and he would be the spiritual leader of the family. Also, and most importantly, in this particular family situation, the birthright included the uh, Abrahamic blessing. In other words, that through the son who had the birthright would come the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. Um, so the birthright that Esau had so flippantly disregarded, so flippantly despised that he traded it for, for a bowl of red bean pottage, brought with it, you see, the privilege to be a link in the line that would lead to the Messiah. Abraham's descendants through Isaac had the unique and uh, glorious privilege of handing on to others the gift of salvation. But Esau had no hunger for God, and he had no desire to be a part of seeing others saved through him, you know, through his descendants. He wasn't thinking about heaven. He didn't think about heaven and the future, or even believe, apparently, in the promise of the coming Savior, the seed of the woman. He lived, as many people do today... He lived for the here and now. And so he exchanged the God of heaven and heaven itself for one brief meal. And if you think that sounds like we're being a little too harsh on Esau, again, we have Hebrews 12:16 to confirm the fact that he was a man who showed contempt for high and holy things. You know, each of us has a choice. Every person has a choice. We can, by our will, we can um, turn upward to God and seek God. Or we can turn downward and focus on ourselves, you know, on our physical selves. We can turn to God and we can do, as it says in Matthew 6.33, we can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all the secondary things will be added unto us, all the you know, other things that we need, the, the physical necessities. Or we can turn downward to gratify and fulfill our own fleshly uh, primal, selfish natures. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We can give ourselves over to our, our toys, our adult toys, and our pleasures, and our egos, and we can sell ourselves out for the secondary things and causes. So we really should... You know, each ask ourselves, what is my price? Do I have a price? Is there anything? Is there something, be it our own happiness or creature comforts or wealth, power, prestige, popularity, our friends, our children, our husband, our talents, our the approval and praise of others? Is there something for which we are willing to barter God's best? You know, because even saved people can sell out. They can barter away their spiritual legacy and plunge themselves into earthly ruin for a simple bowl of beans. And we certainly saw this was true in the uh, life of Abraham's nephew, Lot. 
he didn't lose his salvation. The believer doesn't lose her salvation or his. But he certainly didn't lose everything else, including his family, his uh, honor, his testimony, his joy. I mean, he lost it all. For what? What did he barter it for? The pleasures of Sodom. Well... After selling the birthright, then many years passed, and we moved over to Genesis chapter 27, and uh, Isaac at this time, Isaac the father, was 137 years old, and we are told he was blind, and he thought that he probably wouldn't live much longer. And that we found out wasn't true. He lived another 45 years, I think it was. But he didn't know that. And so he thought that he had better settle his affairs. Not the least of which was the matter of the patriarchal blessing. So in terribly bold defiance of God's will. And this is what crushed us about Isaac. Here's the man who was willing to lay down his life on Mount Moriah. You know, when his father was going to take his life and offer him up as a sacrifice as God had commanded him to do. Same guy, and now he's boldly defying God's will. Isaac determined that rather than giving the blessing to uh, to Jacob as God had wanted, which was God's expressed will, he determined that he would bless Esau instead. Now, we know that Isaac could not have been ignorant about the birthright transaction, you know, when they swapped the birthright for the bowl of beans. He couldn't have been ignorant. He knew what had happened there many years earlier. earlier. And also, he could not have been ignorant, we know he wasn't, about Esau's lack of concern for uh, spiritual matters in that he had really disqualified himself from receiving the blessing. Why? Who had he married? He had married not one, but two Canaanite women. And that right there, I mean, it was enough that he sold his birthright. That disqualified him really from receiving the the blessing of Abraham, you know, that he would be the one to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. That disqualified him. But then, you know, his total disregard for spiritual matters, and then the fact, and that was proven by the fact that he went out and married two probably idol-worshipping women, Canaanites. Yet Isaac chose to bless him anyway. So that was a big, big no-no in Isaac's life. Well, Rebekah, remember, had overheard Isaac's plan with Esau to bless him. The women in Genesis are always standing at the tent doors, (laughs) eavesdropping, and, uh, and, and, and wanting the best for her favorite son, Jacob. She devised a plan, and by that plan, she was really setting the stage for the dividing up of their whole family. But of course, the ultimate blame for their dysfunctional divided family rested not with her. Who would it rest with? Isaac, the the father. Isaac was the spiritual leader of that family, and he clearly should have done God's will instead of his own. Rebecca's sin was attempting to do God's will, but how did she attempt to do it? Her way. (laughs) So it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. Her way, if you get that, her way was by way of deception. So she urged Jacob, her son, to outwit his old and blind father by pretending to be Esau so that he could get the blessing for himself. And ever the great opportunist, you know, Jacob uh, went along with his mother's idea and he carried through the plan and very successfully deceived his Although somewhat skeptical father, it took quite a bit of convincing, but he finally convinced his father um, that he was indeed Esau and he received the blessing. Afterwards, of course, Esau came into the tent and he had the venison prepared for his father and uh, his father suddenly realized what had happened and the good news was that Isaac did repent of his sin against God. Esau, of course, was a co-conspirator with his father to secretly receive the blessing which he 
Just as Isaac, his father, he, Esau also knew that blessing was not his. He knew that blessing belonged to his brother. When Esau learned that he had been outsmarted by his brother Jacob, what did he do? Well, he begged his father. And we, we almost uh, wanted to feel sorry for poor Esau in uh, chapter 27, verse 38. It tells us that, you know, he was, he was really crying up a storm. He was even screaming. He was begging his father, beseeching his father to take back the blessing. Here he is screaming. (laughs) To take back the blessing from Jacob and, um, and give it to him instead. However, his father had attempted a boxing match, we could call it. You know, Jacob, his son, is going to have a wrestling match. But, but Isaac attempted a boxing match with the Lord, and he fully felt the impact of that fight. He had lost, and he knew it. He had tried to override the will of God. And is that possible? No, and he trembled. Esau was screaming and crying, and and Isaac was trembling exceedingly, it told us, when he realized his shame and his folly in having tried to alter God's will. And therefore, no matter how much Esau tried to get Isaac to repent and take back the blessing, Isaac would not take back his blessing from Jacob. He had learned his lesson but at a high price because his family was broken apart and they would never again be fully reunited. Yet Isaac, in this whole story of these four people in this family, Isaac was the only one who really learned from the experience of Genesis 27. He's the only one who really learned his lesson. Esau never learned the lesson because he never turned to God in true repentance and belief. We might feel inclined to sympathize with Esau, you know, especially when we see him crying his eyes out there. But Esau, the Bible says that he um, he serves us really as a very serious warning. The author of Hebrews tells us not to miss the grace of God and, and not to allow a root of bitterness to grow within us and cause trouble, as we know it can. He uh, warns us to make sure that we are not sexually immoral or godless. And who does he use as his example? Like Esau. He says, don't be sexual, don't be a fornicator or a profane person like Esau. So the Bible, I mean, we in our flesh might want to sympathize with him, but the Bible doesn't call us to sympathize with Esau, but to learn from him. Although God is a God of exceeding graciousness and mercy and a God who is long-suffering in tempering his wrath, his mercy with his wrath, yet there are choices in life which cannot be altered. And the primary one is when we continue, if a person continually rejects God's grace in Jesus Christ, the rejection of the promised seed of the woman is an eternally serious matter. To reject belief in him to the moment of your last breath is the only unforgivable sin. So Esau's tears and his his wailing and his crying and all that meant absolutely nothing because they were the tears of frustrated selfishness. I mean, kid, you see kids crying their eyes out and just go to the toy store. If they don't get what they want, they'll be crying and wailing just like Esau. But it's not the right kind. I mean, it's frustrated selfishness. That's what he was doing. These weren't the tears of a mournful soul who realized his own sin and was genuinely repenting, you know, and, and turning to his Savior. He wasn't saying, Father, you know, forgive me. I have, I have really done wrong, and I want to put my faith in the coming Savior who will save me from my awful self. Well, it's interesting to notice that Genesis 27:41 tells us the reason for uh, Esau's hatred of Jacob. We do learn that he hated him so much that he wanted to do what? Murder him. He decided the only comfort he got from his grief was that he decided in his mind that he was going to murder his brother Jacob when their father died. 
Um, so we learn in Genesis 27:41 the reason for his hatred, and that reason was because of the blessing. It says, and Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. It wasn't because, and see if you can grasp this, we didn't talk about this last year, but it wasn't because of Jacob's deception that Esau hated his brother. I mean, that angered him, of course. But Esau knew that he had also been guilty of what? Deception. Because both he and his father were trying to deceive Jacob out of what was rightfully his. However, Esau's hatred to the point of plotting to murder Jacob was due to the fact that Jacob now possessed the blessing. It's very common, you see, among unbelievers, non-believers, to hate those whom God has blessed. Israel, as a nation, has been hated and still is hated. And she has been murdered, literally, by the millions simply because evil hates what God has chosen and blessed. Believers of the church age, you know, you and I, if you've been born again, we have experienced the same treatment. Maybe not us so much in this country, but believers down through the the, uh, corridors of the church age have experienced this treatment. And Jesus said that this, uh, this would be so. He said so in his high priestly prayer, John 17. He said, I have given, he was speaking to his father, and he said, I have given them, meaning his followers, thy word. Is that a blessing? Of course it is. I have given them thy word, and what was the result? And the world hath hated them. Now, of course, behind the hatred and the murderous spirit toward those God has blessed is who? Satan, the evil one himself. Again, then, as was true in the fact that Satan was behind Cain when Cain murdered his righteous brother Abel, so was Satan the instigator behind Esau's plan to murder his brother Jacob. Although Satan attempted to use both Isaac and Esau to frustrate God's plan for the messianic line, his plan had been destroyed. By Jacob. But Esau, as I said before, did not hate his brother for having destroyed that plan. He hated him because he now had the blessing. And it would be through his descendants, through Jacob's descendants, that the coming seed of the woman would appear. And for that reason, he was the target of Satan's evil purposes. And who was the human dupe that Satan would use? Esau. Exactly. So Esau, we find, did not learn his lesson from the Genesis 27 experience, but he only became more of a pawn in the hands of Satan. Neither did uh, Rebecca learn her lesson. I'll leave her up there from this Genesis 27 experience. At least she didn't learn it immediately. I'd, I think maybe in time she perhaps learned it, but... Um, Probably, you know, after she lost both of her sons in one day. But as far as we can see in the text, she did not learn her lesson. Immediately following the carrying through, you know, of her plot for Jacob to receive the blessing, we find her unchanged. When she heard that Esau was so angry with his brother that his only comfort was to plan to kill him, instead of taking the matter straight to her husband, Isaac, as she should have done, what did she do? She once again devised a little scheme to have Jacob removed to a place of safety. So she, what she did is she used their parental concern, you know, her and Isaac's concern regarding a wife for Jacob. That was her deceptive means to get Isaac to send Jacob out of the reach of Esau. In Genesis 27, verse 46, she, she complained to her husband. She whined to him. Sometimes we do that to get our ways, don't we? (laughs) She whined and said that she was weary of her life because of her daughters-in-law. You know, the daughters of Heth. That was a reference to the two Hittite wives of Esau. They were Canaanites, but also they were from Heth, which made them Hittites. 
Anyway, she complained that if Jacob should take such a wife, if Jacob decided that he was also going to take a Canaanite wife, then her life would be absolutely no good to her. She might as well just take her own life. So this was her little thing to get Jake, uh, Isaac to send Jacob away. Now, those statements were probably very true. Those daughter-in-laws of hers did frustrate her no end. Um, and it was true that if Jacob had taken a similar life, she would have been miserable to the point of wanting to probably perish. But the fact of the matter is that she used this as an excuse um, to get Jacob sent away to a place of safety. And all of this set the stage for the next 20 years of Jacob's life. 20 years in God's school of faith, or in his situation, we could definitely call it God's school of hard knocks. He would never again see his beloved mother uh, because she would die before he returned back home after 20 years of absence. Now, Isaac would be alive. He would see his father again. Isn't it funny that he was the one who thought he was at the point of death, and yet he's still hanging in there 20 years later. But uh, actually, we have nothing more written about Isaac except his death when he was 180 years old. So the 20 years of Jacob's separation from his family would be for him a time of heavy and hard reaping of what he had sown. It would definitely be a learning experience for him in many ways and when he would eventually return he would return a far better man in the long run he would learn his lesson so now that was the introduction to the lesson (laughs) now we finally get to our outline for today and uh, our title for today's lesson on genesis 28 verses 1 to 9 is jacob leaves home and we're going to look at uh, five divisions. We're going to look at an inter... Well, we already did. Okay, we've actually started our lesson. We've looked at the introduction to Jacob. That's over with. Cross that off. Now we're going to look at the instruction of Isaac. And for that, uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2. It's Genesis 28, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. Only at the instigation of his wife did Isaac resume his, assume his responsibility to get a wife for Jacob. You know, it was the common custom, as we learned in our study of Abraham, it was the custom for the father of the family to arrange the marriages of his children. That would make things really easy, wouldn't it? Well, nobody agreed with me. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would really complicate things. It depends on your husband, doesn't it? Well, Abraham, anyway, had had taken it upon himself, and he had gone to great lengths, remember, to explain to his most trustworthy servant, Eliezer, we called him. We think it was Eliezer. He explained to him the, the necessity of getting a godly wife for Isaac. And he even made his servant swear to some very important matters. Remember the servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh and he swore, number one, that he would not take a wife from the pagan Canaanites, and, uh, but only from Abraham's relatives, his kindred. And secondly, that under no circumstances would he take Isaac out of the land. You know, remember, if the servant went all the way up to Syria, to um, Abraham's relatives up in Haran, and he found the right woman, he thought she was the right woman, but she said, well, I'm not going to marry somebody I've never seen before, never met before. You know, go get him and bring him back so I can see him. Eliezer, under no circumstances, was to come down and get Isaac and take him out of the land. Isaac was never to leave the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. He never did. He stayed in that land all of his life. Well, as we learned, this servant bathed that whole mission in prayer. I mean, he was quite a prayer warrior. He took this mission very, very seriously. Abraham then sent him off, loaded down with gifts... You know, as like a, kind of like a dowry, and uh, men servants, and how many camels? Nobody remembers how many. 
10, 10 camels loaded down with all kinds of things. And apparently, um, uh, Abraham stressed the importance of returning immediately. As soon as he found a godly girl for Isaac, he was not to waste any time up there in Syria. He was to come right back with her. And that's exactly what he did. Even though if Rebecca's family had had their way, they would have had her delay, you know, let her stay for a while. But the servant said, no, we got to go right away. Will you go? And what did she say? What were her famous words there when they said, well, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So that was that story. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But it was a beautiful story. It was in Genesis chapter 24. Unlike his father Abraham, it's uh, as John Butler says. You'll like that picture. <laughs> John Butler, in his commentary, he says this quote: "A lot of nagging by the wife is often a result of a lot of neglecting by the husband." All you wives say what? Amen. That's true. <laughs> a lot of wives' misdeeds, you know, like Rebecca sending Jacob to beguile Isaac, a lot of a woman's misdeeds are a result of the husband's misdeeds. For example, Isaac trying to bless the wrong son, Esau. Men are the head of the home. When they shirk their responsibilities, they only encourage their wives to intervene and mess things up. End of quote. Well, had Rebecca done what a godly wife, now this woman isn't godly, so we'll get rid of her. Aw. But if she had done what a godly woman should have done, she would have gone to her husband. She would have confessed her sin of deception with Jacob. She would have asked for forgiveness. And then she would have told him about Esau's murderous intentions towards Jacob. You know, I wonder why she didn't do that. Don't you? Do you think she had such little confidence in Isaac that he wouldn't? Yeah. But I, I wonder if she didn't have such little confidence in Isaac. I mean, she didn't know that he, she probably didn't know he had really repented and he was a new man now. She probably thought, well, he won't do anything about it because he just loves that boy so much he won't chastise him. Anyway, she didn't do that. Now, if Isaac had done what a godly husband and father should have done, he would have forgiven his wife and asked for forgiveness himself from her. And then he would have told her that, that he would send their most trusted, godliest servant to Haran, you know, up where her relatives were, to bring back a wife for Jacob. You know, a wife who at least had a knowledge of the true God. Now, of course, as I just mentioned, he should have already done this much earlier on his own initiative. He sh- and, but he didn't. And he also, if he had been a godly husband and father, he should have also then told his wife that they could both trust God to preserve Jacob against the hatred of his brother. After all, God had promised from the time Jacob was in her womb, that he was to be the son to carry on the messianic line, the son who would inherit the Abrahamic covenant promises. So surely Isaac, you know, should have reminded Rebecca that God would keep his word. He might even have thought as, uh, you know, of his, his own father's faith concerning those events that had taken place up on Mount Moriah. Abraham, his father, had believed God's words concerning him, Isaac, you know, as being the son of the messianic line. He, Abraham believed those words from God so much so that he believed that even if he killed his son, what would God do? He would raise him back from the dead because God would fulfill his promises. And all of that, you know, Isaac... Isaac went through that. He experienced that. So surely he should have um, told Rebecca that even that God could, would preserve Jacob. But even if, even if Esau did succeed in killing Jacob, what would God do? 
in order to fulfill his word, he would have had to raise him back from the dead to keep his promises. Well, of course, though, as we find in Genesis 28, Isaac didn't do all these things and say all these things that I've just suggested. Even though he knew the importance of getting his um, son a non-Canaanite wife, yet he failed in that he sent Jacob to get her himself. And so in doing that, what was he what was he doing? He was allowing Jacob to leave the land of blessing. He was actually sending him out of the land of blessing. Now we can't blame Isaac. Actually, we cannot blame him for not trusting God with regard to Esau and his murderous intention. Why can't we blame him for that? Because Rebecca never told him about that. She's the one who overheard. She's the one who knew Esau was going to kill him. But she never told Isaac about it. So he didn't know. However, uh, whatever the cause, we are not left you know, um, with another very beautiful prophetic picture of how God the Father sent forth the Holy Spirit. God being, a, a, Abraham being a picture of God the Father. Um, God sent forth the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is represented by the servant, Eliezer, to call out a wife, Rebecca, to call out the church for the son, Isaac. Isaac is a picture of the church. That is such a beautiful story of God sending the Holy Spirit to call out a wife for the church. I don't mean for the church, for Christ, to call out a wife, Rebecca, for Christ, who is represented by Isaac. Genesis chapter 24, we have tape album on. It's called The Most Beautiful Love Story or The Love Story Made in Heaven or something like that. But here, we don't have that picture, do we? Because what happened? He sent Jacob out of the land of blessing and he sent him to get his wife himself. And the result of that was many years of sorrow and hard labor and trials for Jacob as he was separated from the place of blessing. Yet... When I say all that, I still have to say that God is sovereign. And he knew how all of this would work out. And he still had the situation in control. Because God, uh, Jacob's departure, I hope you listen and get this. You all look really alert this morning. I don't see anybody sleeping. That's wonderful. Um, Jacob's departure from the promised land, the land of blessing, was used by the sovereign God to give us another picture. Okay, we don't need a repeat picture of God the Father sending the Holy Spirit to get the church for the Son. We don't need that. We had that in chapter 24. We're going to get another picture. Okay, prophetic picture. Jacob is a picture in type. He's a prophetic picture of not Jesus, Israel. Even his name was changed to what? Israel. He went from being the deceiver to the prince of God. That's what Israel means. He was the one who would father the 12 tribes of Israel. The, his 12 sons became the, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, let me put this up. Here we got all the little things spelled out for you if you can see them. Even before his birth, Jacob, just like the nation of Israel, remember when Jacob was still in his mother's womb, he was chosen, he was sovereignly chosen by God for God's redemptive purposes. Had nothing to do with his person, his character. Just like God chose Israel, had nothing to do with her. Now, she wasn't any greater than anybody else. In fact, she was less. So it's kind of like Jacob. All right. Like Israel, Jacob desired the blessings of God. Israel desires the blessings of God. But just as he sought those blessings in carnal ways, so has she, through her history, sought his blessings in carnal ways. Also, like Israel, Jacob has experienced a determined effort to be robbed. I'll put that back up so don't scream. She has suffered a determined effort to be robbed of her rightful inheritance. You know, Esau tried to rob Jacob of his inheritance. Well, it's the same that's been true for Israel and is still true to this day, right? 
If you just watch the news, you'll see that she is trying to be robbed of her rightful inheritance. So to maintain the picture, is it any wonder then that God didn't speak from heaven? You know, he could have. His voice could have come down from heaven and he could have commanded Isaac, no, 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 do not allow Jacob to leave the land of promise. Don't let him leave Canaan under no circumstances. Send your, your best servant, but don't let uh, uh, Jacob leave. It's no wonder that God didn't do that. He didn't do it so that he could maintain the picture of Israel. Um, You see, Israel was exiled from the land, wasn't she? And so was Jacob. The exile of Israel, just like Jacob, was due to their own sin and to the murderous hatred of their brothers. God used the hatred of men led by Satan, such as Esau, and later such as the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, and later again in history under the pagan Romans uh, led by Titus Vespasian. That was the exile in 70 AD. He used all those men to fulfill his own plan of chastising Israel. Represented by Jacob. Jacob spent, I'll put it back up in a minute, but Jacob spent a good uh, portion of his life as an exile in a Gentile land. He went to Upper Mesopotamia, which is today the area of Syria. And has that been true in the history of Israel? Yes. In his exile, Jacob suffered the painful chastening of a righteous God, as also have the Jewish people. He was unjustly dealt with in the land of exile. Have the Jews been unjustly dealt with in their exiles? They've had several. Um, But by way of his, he was quite a shrewd businessman. Jacob was a smart fellow. By way of his shrewd business dealings, he became very wealthy while in the land of exile. Did the Jews, are the Jews shrewd business people? And have they become increasingly very wealthy while scattered about in the nations, the Gentile nations? Absolutely. Also, while he was in his land, the land of exile, he was preserved by God. He was preserved by God. He didn't, in other words, uh, blend, amalgamate into the population of his land of exile. He remained as a distinct people until his return to the land. Also, while outside the land of promise, Jacob received no further revelation from God. The whole time he's up there in Haran, no revelation from God. Until at last he is bidden by God to return home. And in all these ways and even more, I didn't even give you all the reasons. Hopefully we'll see all of them as we go through this year's study. But in all these and others, Jacob was a prophetic picture of Israel, the nation of Israel. And so we learn how God used even the failure of Isaac to keep Jacob within the promised land in order to fulfill his own divine purposes. We do have a sovereign God, do we not? All right, you'll have to see me later if you want the rest of that. I'm sorry, I have to get moving on here. Um, So Jacob was told to go to Padam Aran, up here where you see that word Haran. That's where uh, he was to go to his mother's family. And her father's name, remember, was Bethuel. He's long dead by now. Um, And her brother's name, a brother is still living, his name is Laban. In Padan Aram, Jacob was to find himself a wife. In Genesis 28.10, we read that he went toward Haran. And don't think that that was a contradiction because in one verse we're told he's to to go to Padan Aram. And in another verse it says he went to Haran. He did not disobey his father. It's just that Padan Padan Aram is the name of this whole um, northern area of Mesopotamia in which Haran is located. It would be like if somebody told me to, um, to go to Illinois. 
and I headed for Chicago. Am I being disobedient? No. So that's the same thing there. All right, let's move on and look at the inspiration of Isaac very quickly. Verses 3 and 4. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. What we have here, I won't have time to get into all the details, but we have um, finally Isaac blessing Jacob knowing that he is actually blessing Jacob and not Esau. You know, last time he blessed Jacob, he thought he was blessing Esau. And when he gave that blessing, that first blessing, you know, when Jacob, Jacob had the, the fur, the, the goat skin on, um, the words of blessing had to do with prosperity. Isaac said, you know, that he, that he would bless, hope that he, or bless that he would have good soil conditions so that he would have a multitude of crops. And also the blessing that he gave him, thinking he was Esau, had to do with power, you know, that nations would serve him. And where he made his big mistake in blessing Jacob before, thinking he was blessing Esau, was that he said that even his brother would serve him. That was definitely defying God's will because God had said Esau would serve Jacob and Isaac thought he was saying that Jacob would serve Esau. So that was his biggest mistake. The third part of that previous blessing was uh, the preference thing that God would bless those who would bless his descendants and curse those. And what he, he was making a mistake there because too he was um, saying that God would bless the descendants of Esau and curse those who, you know, cursed him and bless those who blessed him. But that, it didn't turn out that way because God is sovereign. God will bless those who bless the descendants of, of Jacob, not the descendants of um, Esau. Well, anyway, now what we see is that he, for some reason, I don't know what it was, but for some reason, Isaac was holding back on the fullness of the Abrahamic blessing when he was speaking to Jacob the first time. You know, I don't know if in his mind he still, although we don't get that picture, we we get the picture that he was really convinced it was Esau. And uh, he is blamed for doing bad. So I don't think he, he, I think he was fully convinced he was blessing Esau. But there must have been a part of Isaac that was purposely holding back Maybe he was, in his way, trying to honor that birthright transaction, you know, the birthright for the beans, somehow honoring that. Um, But anyway, whatever the reason, we now see that he fully gives the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob, knowing he is giving it to Jacob. And what it involves was the um, seed, you know, in other words, that he would be fruitful and multiply and that he'd be the father of nations and kings, you know, that a multitude of people would come from him. That's the same blessing that had been given to Abraham and also to Isaac. And then it also has to do with the promised Savior. Of course, this is the biggest part. This is the most important part of the blessing. And that is what is called in verse 4, the blessing of Abraham. Okay, that's the blessing of Abraham is in reference to the um, promised seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. So in other words, that it would be through Jacob now that the Savior of the world would come. And then the third part of the blessing that Isaac knowingly gave to Jacob was that he would inherit the land. Now, remember... Jacob is about to be exiled. He is about to be sent out of the land. So do you think this promise about the land is important to him? Yeah, because otherwise it might look like he's being um, disinherited. And after, after 20 years, he might think, you know, my father was mad at me and that land is not mine. I won't even go back. So it's very important that he heard that the land was his. And he would remember that part of the blessing for 20 long years. All right, so this is what we, um, this is what Isaac is commended for in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. This is it. 
giving this blessing knowingly to the right son, to Jacob. Let's move now and look at the uh, implementation by Jacob, and that's very easy. I'll just read it. This means that he he obeyed his father and did what his father said. Look at verse 5. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he, meaning Jacob, went to Padan Aram unto Laban, son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. All right, so he, this is kind of a summary of everything we're going to read about in the next few chapters. He did what his father told him to do. Okay, now let's look at the indiscretion of Esau. Verses 6 to 9. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father. Who was he interested in pleasing? Rebecca his mother? No. He didn't care if his wives didn't please her, but he now found out, realized that they didn't please his father. What did he do? Verse 9. Then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Remember Abraham's oldest son, Ishmael. He's dead now, but he goes to his people and he takes for a wife, uh, Mahalath, the sister of Nebajoth to be his wife. This is Ishmael's daughter. Okay. So here's what we, I mean, we find that Esau had such little discernment, spiritual discernment, that um, when he heard that his father sent his brother off to find a wife from his mother's family, the wheels of his mind begin to turn. And he thinks, ah, maybe this is why my father blessed Jacob instead of me, you know, because um, I have these two Canaanite wives and I didn't go into my own relatives to find a wife. And so to appease himself with his father, instead instead of going to his mother's people, he goes to his father's closest relatives. He goes to his father's half-brother's family, Ishmael. He goes to the family of Uncle Ishmael, and he takes there a woman named Mahalath, who is Ishmael's daughter. Probably the same woman as Bashamath over in Genesis 36.3. They had different names and it gets confusing. But anyway, this was a very pathetic move on the part of Esau. It was just further proof of how little... These back up there while I'm talking. How little he understood the truth of God's redemptive plan. You know, although the daughter of Ishmael might have known the God of her grandfather Abraham, there is there is a chance maybe she did know the true God, or at least had knowledge of him. And if she did, what was wrong with her marriage? If she did know God, she shouldn't have married Esau. So either way, it was an uh, you know unequally yoked marriage. Um, but even though she she might have known God the God of her grandfather. Yet the fact of the matter is that she was a member of the branch of Abraham's family which had been removed from the mainstream of the covenant blessings. Furthermore, so he was wrong in that, okay? Ishmael had been cast out. Furthermore, he was wrong in having added yet another wife. Let me see. I have a picture of... There she is. Hmm. Not too happy about that. He already had two wives, and that was one wife too many already. And now he goes ahead and, you know, makes matters worse by adding yet a third. So Esau, the natural man, you know, the carnal man, the unregenerate, unsaved man, simply seemed incapable of understanding spiritual things. And isn't that what the Bible tells us? The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. 